This is the Darkest Page Podcast. Naturally, Danforth and I studied with a special interest and a peculiarly personal sense of awe everything pertaining to the immediate district in which we were. Of this local material there was naturally a vast abundance, and on the tangled ground level of the city we were lucky enough to find a house of very late date, whose walls, though somewhat damaged by a neighbouring rift, contained sculptures of decadent workmanship carrying the story of the region much beyond the period of the Pliocene map, whence we derived our last general glimpse of the pre-human world. This was the last place we examined in detail, since what we found there gave us a fresh, immediate objective. Certainly, we were in one of the strangest, weirdest and most terrible of all the corners of Earth's globe. Of all existing lands it was infinitely the most ancient, and the conviction grew upon us that this hideous upland must indeed be the fabled nightmare plateau of Leng, which even the mad author of the Necronomicon was reluctant to discuss. The great mountain chain was tremendously long, starting as a low range at Leupoldland on the coast of Weddell Sea and virtually crossing the entire continent. The really high part stretched in a mighty arc from about latitude 82 degrees east, longitude 60 degrees, to latitude 70 degrees east, longitude 115 degrees, with its concave side towards our camp and its seaward end in the region of that long, ice-locked coast whose hills were glimpsed by Wilkes and Mawson at the Antarctic Circle. Yet even more monstrous exaggerations of nature seem disturbingly close at hand. I have said that these peaks are higher than the Himalayas, but the sculptures forbid me to say that they are Earth's highest. That grim honour is beyond doubt reserved for something which half the sculptures hesitated to record at all, whilst others approached it with obvious repugnance and trepidation. It seems that there was one part of the ancient land, the first part that ever rose from the waters after the earth had flung off the moon and the old ones had seeped down from the stars, which had come to be shunned as vaguely and namelessly evil. Cities built there had crumbled before their time and had been found suddenly deserted. Then when the first great earth buckling had convulsed the region in the Comanchean age, a frightful line of peaks had shot suddenly up amidst the most appalling din and chaos, and Earth had received her loftiest and most terrible mountains. If the scale of the carvings was correct, these abhorred things must have been much over 40,000 feet high, radically vaster than even the shocking mountains of madness we had crossed. They extended, it appeared, from about latitude 77 degrees east, longitude 70 degrees, to latitude 70 degrees east, longitude 100 degrees, less than 300 miles away from the dead city, so that we would have spied their dreaded summits in the dim western distance had it not been for that vague opalescent haze. Their northern end must likewise be visible from the long Antarctic Circle coastline at Queen Mary Land. Some of the old ones, in the decadent days, had made strange prayers to those mountains, but none ever went near them or dared to guess what lay beyond. 
No human eye had ever seen them, and as I studied the emotions conveyed in the carvings, I prayed that none ever might. They are protecting hills along the coast beyond them, Queen Mary and Kaiser Wilhelm lands, and I thank heaven no one has been able to land and climb those hills. I am not as sceptical about old tales and fears as I used to be, and I do not laugh now at the pre-human sculptor's notion that lightning paused meaningfully now and then at each of the brooding crests, and that an unexplained glow shone from one of those terrible pinnacles all through the long polar night. There may be a very real and very monstrous meaning in the old narcotic whispers about Kadath in the cold waste. But the terrain close at hand was hardly less strange, even if less namelessly accursed. Soon after the founding of the city, the great mountain range became the seat of the principal temples, and many carvings showed what grotesque and fantastic towers had pierced the sky where now we saw only the curiously clinging cubes and ramparts. In the course of ages, the caves had appeared, and had been shaped into adjuncts of the temples. With the advance of still later epochs, all the limestone veins of the region were hollowed out by groundwaters, so that the mountains, the foothills, and the plains below them were a veritable network of connected caverns and galleries. Many graphic sculptures told of explorations deep underground, and of the final discovery of the Stygian sunless sea that lurked at Earth's bowels. This vast, nighted gulf had undoubtedly been worn by the great river which flowed downward from the nameless and horrible westward mountains, and which had formerly turned at the base of the Old One's range, and flowed beside that chain into the Indian Ocean, between Bud and Totten lands on Wilkes's coastline. Little by little it had eaten away the limestone hill base as its turning, till at last its sapping currents reached the caverns of the groundwaters, and joined with them in digging a deeper abyss. Finally, its whole bulk emptied into the hollow hills and left the old bed toward the ocean dry. Much of the later city as we now found it had been built over that former bed. The old ones, understanding what had happened, and exercising their always keen artistic sense, had carved into ornate pylons those headlands of the foothills, where the great stream began its descent into eternal darkness. This river, once crossed by scores of noble stone bridges, was plainly the one whose extinct course we had seen in our aeroplane survey. Its position in different carvings of the city helped us to orientate ourselves to the scene as it had been at various stages of the region's age-long, eon-dead history so that we were able to sketch a hasty but careful map of the salient features, squares, important buildings and the like, for guidance in further explorations. We could soon reconstruct in fancy the whole stupendous thing as it was a million, or ten million, or fifty million years ago, for the sculptures told us exactly what the buildings and mountains and squares and suburbs and landscape setting and luxuriant tertiary vegetation had looked like. It must have had a marvellous and mystic beauty, and as I thought of it I almost forgot the clammy sense of sinister oppression with which the city's inhuman age and massiveness and deadness and remoteness and glacial twilight had choked and weighed on my spirit. Yet, according to certain carvings, the denizens of that city had themselves known the clutch of oppressive terror, for there was a sombre and recurrent type of scene in which the old ones were shown in the act 
of recoiling affrightedly from some object, never allowed to appear in the design, found in the great river, and indicated as having been washed down through waving, vine-draped psychic forests from those horrible westward mountains. It was only in the one late-built house with the decadent carvings that we obtained any foreshadowing of the final calamity leading to the city's desertion. Undoubtedly, there must have been many sculptures of the same age elsewhere, even allowing for the slackened energies and aspirations of a stressful and uncertain period. Indeed, very certain evidence of the existence of others came to us shortly afterward, but this was the first and only set we directly encountered. We meant to look further later on, but as I have said, immediate conditions dictated another present objective. There would, though, have been a limit, for after all hope of a long future occupancy of the place had perished among the old ones, there could not but have been a complete cessation of mural decoration. The ultimate blow, of course, was the coming of the great cold, which once held most of the earth in thrall and which has never departed from the ill-fated poles. The great cold that, at the world's other extremity, put an end to the fabled lands of Lomar and Hyperborea. Just when this tendency began in the Antarctic, it would be hard to say in terms of exact years. Nowadays, we set the beginning of the general glacial period at a distance of about 500,000 years from the present. But at the poles, the terrible scourge must have commenced much earlier. All quantitative estimates are partly guesswork, but it is quite likely that the decadent sculptures were made considerably less than a million years ago, and that the actual desertion of the city was complete long before the conventional opening of the Pleistocene 500,000 years ago, as reckoned in terms of the Earth's whole surface. In the decadent sculptures, there were signs of thinner vegetation everywhere, and of a decreased country life on the part of the old ones, Heating devices were shown in the houses, and winter travellers were represented as muffled in protective fabrics. Then we saw a series of cartouches, the continuous band arrangement being frequently interrupted in these late carvings, depicting a constantly growing migration to the nearest refuges of greater warmth. Some fleeing to cities under the sea of the faraway coast, and some clambering down through networks of limestone caverns in the hollow hills to the neighbouring black abyss of subterranean waters. In the end, it seems to have been the neighbouring abyss which received the greatest colonisation. This was partly due, no doubt, to the traditional sacredness of this especial region, but may have been more conclusively determined by the opportunities it gave for continuing the use of the great temples on the honeycombed mountains and for retaining the vast land city as a place of summer residence and base of communication with various minds. The linkage of old and new abodes was made more effective by means of several gradings and improvements along the connecting routes, including the chiselling of numerous direct tunnels from the ancient metropolis to the Black Abyss, sharply down-pointing tunnels whose mouths we carefully drew, according to our most thoughtful estimates, on the guide map we were compiling. It was obvious that at least two of these tunnels lay within a reasonable exploring distance of where we were, both being on the mountainwood edge of the city, one less than a quarter of a mile towards the ancient river course, and the other perhaps twice that distance in the opposite direction. The abyss, it seems, 
had shelving shores of dry land at certain places, but the old ones built their new city underwater, no doubt because of its greater certainty of uniform warmth. The depth of the hidden sea appears to have been very great, so that the Earth's internal heat could ensure its habitability for an indefinite period. The beings seem to have had no trouble in adapting themselves to part-time, and eventually, of course, whole-time residence underwater, since they had never allowed their gill systems to atrophy. There were many sculptures which showed how they had always frequently visited their submarine kingsfolk elsewhere, and how they had habitually bathed on the deep bottom of the great river. The darkness of inner earth could likewise have been no deterrent to a race accustomed to long Antarctic nights. Decadent though their style undoubtedly was, these latest carvings had a truly epic quality, where they told of the building of the new city in the cavern sea. The old ones had gone about it scientifically, quarrying insoluble rock from the heart of the honeycombed mountains, and employing expert workers from the nearest submarine city to perform the construction according to the best methods. These workers brought with them all that was necessary to establish the new venture, shoggoth tissue from which to breed stone lifters and subsequent beasts of burden for the cavern city, and other protoplasmic matter to mould into phosphorescent organisms for lighting purposes. At last, a mighty metropolis rose on the bottom of the Stygian Sea, its architecture much like that of the city above, and its workmanship displaying relatively little decadence because of the precise mathematical element inherent in building operations. The newly bred Shoggoths grew to enormous size and singular intelligence, and were represented as taking and executing orders with marvellous quickness. They seemed to converse with the old ones by mimicking their voices, a sort of musical piping over a wide range, if poor Lake's dissection had indicated a right, and to work more from spoken commands than from hypnotic suggestions as in earlier times. They were, however, kept in admirable control. The phosphorescent organisms supplied light with vast effectiveness, and doubtlessly atoned for the loss of the familiar polar auroras of the outer world night. Art and decoration were pursued, though of course with a certain decadence. The old ones seemed to realise this falling off themselves, and in many cases anticipated the policy of Constantine the Great by transplanting especially fine blocks of ancient carvings from their land city, just as the Emperor, in a similar age of decline, stripped Greece and Asia of their finest art to give his new Byzantine capital greater splendours than its own people could create. That the transfer of sculptured blocks had not been more extensive was doubtless owing to the fact that the land city was not at first wholly abandoned. By the time total abandonment did occur, and it surely must have occurred before the polar Pleistocene was far advanced, the old ones had perhaps become satisfied with their decadent art, or had ceased to recognise the superior merit of the older carvings. At any rate, the eon-silent ruins around us had certainly undergone no wholesale sculptural denudation, though all the best separate statues, like other movables, had been taken away. The decadent cartouches and dados telling their story were, as I have said, the latest we could find in our limited search. They left us with a picture of the old ones shuttling back and forth betwixt the land city in summer and the sea cavern city in winter 
and sometimes trading with the sea-bottom cities of the Antarctic coast. By this time, the ultimate doom of the land city must have been recognised, for the sculptures showed many signs of the cold's malign encroachments. Vegetation was declining, and the terrible snows of the winter no longer melted completely, even in midsummer. The Saurian livestock were nearly all dead, and the mammals were standing it none too well. To keep on with the work of the upper world, it had become necessary to adapt some of the amorphous and curiously cold-resistant shoggoths to land life, a thing the old ones had formerly been reluctant to do. The great river was now lifeless, and the upper sea had lost most of its denizens except the seals and whales. All the birds had flown away, save only the great, grotesque penguins. What had happened afterwards we can only guess. How long had the new sea cavern city survived? Was it still down there, a stony corpse in eternal blackness? Had the subterranean waters frozen at last? To what fate had the ocean-bottom cities of the outer world been delivered? Had any of the old ones shifted north ahead of the creeping ice cap? Existing geology shows no trace of their presence. Had the frightful Migo been still a menace in the outer land world of the north? Could one be sure of what might or might not linger even to this day in the lightless and unplumbed abysses of Earth's deepest waters? Those things had seemingly been able to withstand any amount of pressure, and men of the sea have fished up curious objects at times. And has the killer whale theory really explained the savage and mysterious scars on Antarctic seals noticed a generation ago by Borsch Grevink? The specimens found by Pua Lake did not enter into those guesses, for their geological setting proved them to have lived at what must have been a very early date in the land city's history. They were, according to their location, certainly not less than 30 million years old, and we reflected that in their day the sea cavern city, and indeed the cavern itself, had no existence. They would have remembered an older scene, with lush tertiary vegetation everywhere, a younger land city of flourishing arts around them, and a great river sweeping northward along the base of the mighty mountains towards a faraway tropic ocean. And yet, we could not help thinking about those specimens, especially about the eight perfect ones that were missing from Lake's hideously ravaged camp. There was something abnormal about the whole business. The strange things we have tried so hard to lay to somebody's madness, those frightful graves, the amount and nature of the missing material, Gedney, the unearthly toughness of those archaic monstrosities, and the queer vital freaks the sculptures now showed the race to have. Danforth and I had seen a good deal in the last few hours, and were prepared to believe and keep silent about many appalling and incredible secrets of primal nature. This has been At the Mountains of Madness, 
by H.P. Lovecraft. This episode was made possible by the support of the librarians of The Darkest Page, Alex Smith and Tonks. To see how you can support The Darkest Page podcast, please visit patreon.com forward slash the darkest page. I have been your host, and I wish you pleasant dreams.